I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to Talking Golf History. It only takes a single seed to grow a forest. With nourishment, that seed can grow and spread life across the land. John Reed and the St. Andrews Golf Club of New York were not the first seed of golf to be planted in the United States. But one could argue it was their seed that spawned tens of thousands of courses across the land. Today on our podcast, we discuss the history of St. Andrews, the club of many firsts. If you play golf in the United States, listen in, because there's an awfully good chance that your club or your course is directly related to the granddaddy of golf in America, St. Andrews. Before we start our show today, make sure to check out the Golf Heritage Society at www.golfheritage.org. The Golf Heritage Society has a membership of golf historians, collecting experts, and lovers of golf antiquities. As the new regional director of the Southeast United States, I will be running a promotion that will celebrate you joining the GHS by joining me for a round at the historic Bel Air Country Club in Clearwater, Florida, the oldest course in Florida. With no more delays, let's dive into the history of one of the founding members of the USGA, St. Andrews Golf Club. Today on our podcast, we are joined by members of St. Andrews Golf Club's historical committee, including Rick Powers and Bruce Clark. Gentlemen, thank you for joining Talking Golf History. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Pleasure indeed. Yeah, Rick and Bruce, maybe if you could maybe uh, talk about your time at St. Andrews. I believe you have a a little bit of a disparity from when you joined and how long you've been with the club. So maybe dive into that. Maybe start off with you, Bruce. Okay. Uh, Rick spreads rumors about me that I was here when John Reed was here, but that is not true. <laughs> I, I joined uh, I joined St. Andrews as a resident member in 1968, and uh, uh, went away uh, for four years after that uh, in the Air Force, and came back to join again in 1975. Actually, my membership continued; they just didn't charge me any dues when I was in the service, and uh, I've been on the uh, board three separate times, and this time at the president for 11 years, and was the secretary of the club when we did the deal with Jack Nicholas that led to the redoing of the golf course and the addition of some houses on the property. Uh, That's my my background, except I guess the high point of my time at St. Andrews, I should say, is that I, um, in 1969, I came off uh, meeting somebody uh, named Dan Melia, he had a guest. I had a guest. We had not met each other before. We played as a foursome, and when I came off the 18th green, 
waiting for him was his daughter, who was over there to surprise him for lunch. And if I behave, we will have been married 49 years this November. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So I, I've gotten a lot out of St. Andrew. Put it that Absolutely. Way. You've made a life out of it, literally. <laughs> True. How about yourself, Rick? I've been a member of St. Andrew's since uh, 2013. Um, joined the year the club celebrated its 125th anniversary. I've had the uh, privilege of serving as uh, chair of the membership committee, followed by uh, being chair of the communications committee and working with uh, Bruce on the historical committee. So I've uh, found myself increasingly engaged in the uh, life of this really remarkable uh, institution, the St. Andrews Golf Club. Uh, When I joined, of course, the focus um, and uh, really a tremendous amount of activity was going into uh, our history. And that uh, I found utterly fascinating. And, uh, you know, uh, that has led to my current engagement. But the club uh, during this time has been engaged in a very strong focus on uh, moving forward on all fronts in, uh, I would call, uh, advancing the game. Uh, That's kind of a watchword we've uh, picked up on. And that uh, has has resulted in a lot of change uh, during my time at the club. And uh, it's, uh, I wouldn't say it's altogether a different club than when I joined, but, you know, it's certainly a club that, has moved forward on um, many fronts over the last uh, seven years. Yeah, what is the club like today? And yeah, I, I suppose the second part of that question is, how, do, how does it go about celebrating its rich history? Well, um, to answer the, the first part, we're still a, a club of men and women who are basically devoted to golf. Uh, there are approximately uh, 261 golfing members. We've added 28 members this year, which I think reflects uh, certainly the attractiveness of a course that's near but not in Manhattan. It's readily available to anywhere in the New York York area. Um, And we still maintain some of the uh, degrees of informality in terms of the structure of, of playing golf. We do not have tee times. And in the 50 uh, odd years where I've been a member, we have never had tea times. Really? I mean, we'll, yeah, we'll have tea times when there's a tournament, but 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 day to day, that's not the case. And uh, there are quite a few uh, uh, emphases on, on new members and making them comfortable. Uh, for example, all uh, the new members are expected to play at least nine holes with our great pro, Greg Bisconti. And uh, there is a, a member assigned to be sort of a sponsor for new members and to try to incorporate them into the into the club as seamlessly as possible. So I, I think it's fair to say uh, we're doing pretty well. Uh, we'll do better once COVID is over, as everyone else will. But uh, we're getting by very well. You know, I, a question, quick question for you, Bruce. I guess Rick as well. Um, your club being one of the oldest uh, in the United States, what is there a prerequisite or I, I guess an expectation for members to know about your history? Well, you know, we have an application process and people always uh, add comments on why they want to join. And they've always played a a round or two, at least sometimes a lot more as guests. 
Uh, but they'll always comment on the fact that the history of the club is an important factor in why they want to join. Uh, we have any number of exhibits uh, around the club. In fact, Rick is taking the lead and putting one together now that'll be in the uh, the entrance, uh, probably opening up within, uh, within this month. And um, we have uh, an annual address, which we did not have this year because of COVID, where the uh, usually the club historian goes through the history in as succinct uh, a way as possible because it's usually at the last event before the bar opens, so you have to watch your time. But it's, you know, I, I've done that for the last many years, and uh, it, it's an effort in about, I'd say, 20 minutes to bring the newer members in particular up, up to date. And I often find things that I have not known the year before to add, so I, I hope it's somewhat interesting. That's the sort of formal way we do it. I love that. One, it's always, you're always learning, right? It's amazing all the things we pick up just year after year. You think you would think you'd know everything by now, but there's always new things to learn, isn't there? Even preparing for this talk with you today, I mean, I came across a couple of materials telling me things that I may have once known and forgotten or may never have known, but you're absolutely right. If we don't ask about them, I'm going to expect you to bring them up. (laughs) Deal? Deal. Could I add a a comment on that? Uh, so I, Bruce is a bit too modest. He uh, does an excellent job of uh, communicating the club's history. But it's also the case that uh, the club's history uh, really surrounds us as members. Our uh, clubhouse uh, was built in 1897. Robert H. Robertson, uh, who was the fourth president of USGA, St. Andrew's vice president at the time, was uh, the architect. When you walk into the clubhouse, you're immediately, um, you immediately come uh, into contact with a, a beautiful uh, trophy case. And as Bruce said, we're in the process of uh, uh, putting up a uh, display that will really highlight the in- numerous uh, firsts of the club in the uh, early years of golf. Um, each year uh, on uh, a day that we call Apple Tree Day, we plant an apple tree. Uh, in uh, memory and in celebration of that founding group of members, the Apple Tree Gang. Uh, Our learning center is named the Apple Tree Learning Center. So uh, as much as we have advanced in the last decade, and as much as I think we are in most ways that matter in golf on the leading edge today, uh, everything we do has a nod to history. Oh, that's great. You know, there isn't a St. Andrews Golf Club of New York. Uh, there isn't a story without John Reed. I was wondering if you two could tell me a little bit more about John Reed before he founded St. Andrews. What do we know about him? Well, um, we know he lived in Yonkers and worked uh, in the steel industry. Uh, his office uh, in, in New York was in Mott Haven, which is a section of the Bronx that today is uh, uh, somewhat derelict, I think it's fair to say. Um, and the people that he formed the club with, the immediate uh, group that that organized the club and then joined thereafter, were mostly neighbors of his in Yonkers. Uh, he did um, later... Uh, bring in to the club uh, Andrew Carnegie uh, some years after the club was organized. And Carnegie, like 
like Reed, had been uh, born and raised in Dunfermline in Scotland. Uh, and Carnegie, of course, it's rumored, was also in the steel industry, so they may have met over here. But, yeah. Um, but it, we, we have not been able to nail down, although I've, I've taken some effort to try, whether they knew each other first uh, growing up in Scotland or if they only met uh, in the U.S. because of their steel connections. But uh, Reed was, you know, he, he was interested in organizing a golf club so that, that he could play and his friends could play. But he was very attentive to the idea of spreading golf throughout the New York area and then later throughout, he hoped, and in fact, it came to pass throughout the country. Was it, so that was a defining purpose that he had in mind, you believe? I, I do. Yeah. I do. And I, I say that uh, because of uh, reading the minutes uh, and, and seeing the statements he made and reading some of the statements he made at dinners and things like that always stressing uh, the need and uh, the objective of expanding golf in the United States. Uh, fortunately, he uh, came to the leadership position at St. Andrews at a time when a number of other people were interested in expanding golf around the country. So the timing, the timing was just right. But, um, you know, for, for example, uh, he organized the first uh, public links tournament uh, in, I think it was 1890, 1896, um, he, he interviewed, uh, interviewed, invited, um, approximately, uh, 50 golfers. The condition was that they not be members of golf clubs. They had to be, uh, unaffiliated with golf clubs and invited them to play, uh, in this tournament and ran the tournament. Uh, and you know, that's just Bruce was that, that was at, uh, Van Cortland park, correct? It, it was indeed. That is okay. correct. Was John Reed a good golfer? Do we know? Do we have any records of his game? Uh, according to the, they kept pretty uh, uh, strict track of who beat whom in the minutes in the early days. And I think you could sum it up by saying he was very enthusiastic. <laughs> Excuse I, I, I snorted there. I was laughing so hard. I can't, I can't remember. I, he won some matches. He definitely won a number of matches. But I, I don't believe he won the club championship. If I stand to be corrected. That'd be fine. Um, but I, I, I think uh, his greatest contribution was the organization and dedication to the game itself, uh, rather than uh, being the best golfer at any particular point in time. That, that's my understanding as well. Very, I believe he was a solid player. Uh, he did not win the club championship. So he just loved the game. He wanted to spread it. He wanted to be the Johnny Appleseed, if you will. But uh, that's the legend ends there. It doesn't win with an uh, eight-time club champion like Rusty Hills over at Prairie Dunes Country Club. Yeah, no, I, I don't think that was part of his uh, resume. But he had enough other things on there, so he, he did not need to be ashamed. That's right. In my records, I have February twenty second, 1888. John plays or golf with some friends in a field near Yonkers, New York. Okay, he played with a friend named John Upham, and um, uh, they had uh, obtained some uh, golf balls and golf clubs from another friend named Robert Lockhart, who in fact also was from Dunfermline in Scotland. And over the Christmas holidays, 1887-1888, Lockhart, at Reed's request, uh, brought back some golf clubs and balls he reportedly uh, t- 
tested them before he brought them up to read after he returned. And the story goes that he was retained, detained by the police for disturbing the peace. They'd never seen something like this before. But he got the, he got the clubs and the balls up to, up to read, and you got the date right. On February 22nd, 1888, John Reed and, a, and his friend John Upham did a demonstration of uh, over three holes laid out in a corn pasture across the street from Reed's house in Yonkers. Uh, providentially, as some of the neighbors who didn't like what they were doing would say, the blizzard of 1888 came a few days later, so their golf was delayed until that melted away. But that was the first recorded uh, play. Now, and, and did that become a course, or was that just, you know, three trial holes, if you will? I think it's fair to characterize it as three trial holes. At that. Uh, and it, didn't, it didn't last very long as, as where they played. And later in 1888, still in the spring, Reed and his friends moved around the corner to a meadow at North Broadway and Shonard Place, still in Yonkers. And this is a 30-acre meadow owned by another neighbor named John Schatz. And they laid out six holes. And it's there that the first known photograph of golf in the U.S. was taken, and I know you've seen that photograph. Absolutely, a lot of people have it. Always reminds me of uh, the country that lost the war. You know, it's a very, very bleak landscape. Um, and the four golfers are Reed and his friend Upham, and two other early members, Harry Holbrook and Alexander Kinnan. And there are two lads in the picture carrying any number of clubs over their shoulders, and those are Kinnan's sons. So let me ask you both this question. February 22nd, 1888. Do you think either one of them understood the significance of what they were doing on that day and what it would become? Uh, my, my own guess, I wasn't there, Rick. Uh, my, my own guess is that they, they knew that they were doing something that they really enjoyed. Uh, it was something that John Reed had enjoyed when he was in Scotland and wanted to uh, get started for himself and his friends here in the in the U.S. Whether they knew then that they were starting something of some such significance, uh, I can only guess. But obviously, in a few years, they realized they had done that. I I would only say that I believe that John Reed was quite determined uh, that golf was going to be established, uh, and that he was going to be a part of that. And I I believe uh, that. Uh, his uh, co- his colleague and friend who brought the clubs, Robert Lockhart, shared that commitment. So I do think that there was something uh, to the notion that uh, something was beginning that, that Reed thought would be important. I, I did want to add one uh, point of interest to uh, this date, and that is that to this day, we at St. Andrews play a tournament at the end of winter called the commemorative and it's played in March. Often, uh, I've, I've never missed it. Um, and it's often the case that there's snow on the ground and, uh, and it, there's been, uh, years when there's been snow in the air when we played it. And that is, uh, you know, um, in remembrance of this first round of golf, you know, played in uh, America back in February 22nd, 1888. Yeah. You guys are crazy. <laughs> That's pretty cold up there, guys. You could come down to Florida and do that. We're golfers. (laughs) I know. I love it. I love it. 
So your first official round, if you were, the first, first golf of the St. Andrews Golf Club before, unofficially, let's say, occurred in February of 1888. How long did it take the club to become officially organized? It was that year. What well, was? Uh, there was a dinner. There was a dinner on November fourteenth of that year uh, at John Reed's home, and uh, Reed was there. Henry Talmadge, whose name I'm sure you know for various reasons, William Baldwin, Harry Holbrook, and William Innes were the five incorporators, and they organized the St. Andrews Golf Club of Yonkers on the Hudson. That was the official organization of the club, and the date from which they they date their continuous existence. Let me ask you the, the most obvious question. <laughs> I have to ask it, though. Why did they name it St. Andrews Golf Club? Seems obvious, but I figured for the audience, let's just make sure we have all the facts. I, I think uh, they had played, John Reed had played at St. Andrews and uh, recognized, they all recognized that St. Andrews in Scotland was uh, the birthplace of, of golf uh, and that they wanted to be the birthplace of golf in the United States. And so they took the name. Well, that's one. Way, that's definitely a way to celebrate it. You know, the the early members of St. Andrews were often referred to, as you alluded to early, the Apple Tree Gang. I was wondering if you could tell us how this nickname came about. Yes, that was the next move. Uh, in the spring of 1892, uh, Yonkers decided to run a road through the six-hole course that was the second home of St. Andrews. And so that became untenable as their as their golfing location. So they moved uh, not far, about four blocks north, to 626 Palisade Avenue. And they laid out six holes over a 36-acre apple orchard. And at the beginning of the first hole, at first tee, there was an apple tree. And the apple tree uh, served as their clubhouse. Uh, it was where they hung their jackets before they played, if they did that. And there often was a demijohn of whiskey hanging from the tree as well. Uh, and that that became the source of their name as the Apple Tree Gang. There's a piece of, uh, the apple tree is gone. I, I've been to the location and the apple tree is, is gone from that, from that spot. But one piece of the tree is at the clubhouse in St. Andrews in Scotland. And another is in the John Reed room, fittingly enough, at St. Andrews here in New York. Oh, I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. If you visit us uh, at the clubhouse, you'll, you'll have trouble not seeing it. Oh, that's fantastic. So I understand that the meaning Apple Tree Gang, we talked perhaps a little bit about this in the beginning, that it, the nickname still holds true today. What does it mean today to be part of the Apple Tree Gang? Well, it means that we trace our roots back, we really do trace our roots back to 1888, but the apple tree was a, a symbol of the club beginning in uh, 1892. And even though uh, uh, they moved again two years later, uh, the moniker held. And uh, we have, you know, apple tree gang memorabilia, various uh, shirts and other things uh, all over our pro shop. It's very hard to, uh, to miss the connection. It's really just drawing a connection between the early origins and today. Yeah. So every member essentially is part of the Apple Tree Gang. Yes, that's true. If I could add to that, there are there are several uh, traditions that we observe that we 
celebrate as harking back to that time. One is that um, without uh, tea times, um, it, that really means that many people come to the club uh, without a group. And uh, they, because of our tradition, the apple tree gang tradition, uh, it's expected that they'll be invited to join a group and that and members will, uh, you know, pair up or form a group of four to play. And that, um, you know, that's one aspect of it that's important to us that is alive and well today. Uh, another uh, aspect of it is that we, we have open play on Tuesday mornings and Friday mornings. And uh, it's uh, a time when uh, a number of men and women uh, simply come to the club. You put a, a golf ball in a bucket. It's identifiable to you. And groups are pulled from the bucket. And there's competition. There's a mini tournament held each Tuesday and Friday morning. And uh, that these, this, these groups are referred to as the Apple Tree Gang. Oh, that's great. One of the questions I have, I, I suppose, is, you know, in those early years, I, I find this really fascinating about the early years of St. Andrew's Golf Club, that you had a little bit of instability that you brought up here a little uh, earlier ago um, when it came to the golf course and the club that where the club played. Could you share a little bit of the history? I know you shared the early part from 1888 to 1892, but then the club moved again in 1897. Maybe share a little bit of why that move was necessary. Well, you skipped one. Oh, I did. There was a, there was a, okay, the next, there you go. The, the, um, the next move was, it was two years later. It was 1894, two years later than the one I mentioned a moment ago. And they moved another half mile east. They, uh, the club purchased the Odell Farm or at least the rights to play at the Odell Farm at Gray Oaks on the Sawmill River. And this was a, a nine-hole course. And it was there, as we all know, that the first U.S. Amateur and the first U.S. Open were played. And so do we know why they moved in 1894, after only being at the, uh, the Apple Orchard for two years? Primarily because at the, at the Apple Orchard, again, they had a six-hole course. And, and the standard at the time by 1894, was at least a nine-hole course. And indeed, I think it was a year earlier that Chicago had opened or at least started to put together an 18-hole course. So it was to not, you know, have a six-hole course when everyone else was having something more more complete. I think that's why they made the move in 1894. And then three years later, you move again to your current location, 1897. Do we know why that move was made? I, I think it was the same thing. They recognized that uh, the nine-hole course had been great fun. Uh, there are a lot of recorded events over there, but uh, uh, 18 holes was the standard. And indeed, when they when they bought members of St. Andrews bought the property in uh, 1897, they formed something called the St. Andrews Company, and then they leased it to the club and then sold it to the club when the club was in a financial position to buy it. So, uh, but everybody recognized that they needed 18 holes in order to be a, uh, a then modern golf course, and that was the reason for the move. And do you think they ever considered just buying a new course every five years after that? I'm just kidding. <laughs> it is amazing, right? That's, I mean, four it is, clubs. It is a tradition. It is a tradition. Every two or three years to go to a new place. I like, I think I like they, that. They broke that tradition really finally. Have, yeah, and I think we're all glad they did. I mean, if you keep heading east sooner or later, you're going to hit the ocean. <laughs> That's true. 
So we, we put a lot of emphasis, right or wrong, on being the first, maybe in this country, but maybe in the world. Uh, St. Andrew's Golf Club is often referred to as a club of firsts. We'll get to many of your other amazing firsts, but I was wondering if you could give me your thoughts on whether you consider St. Andrew's to be the first golf club in America. Well, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, if you look at uh, 1783, uh, when when the British finally acknowledged that they had lost the war and went back went back to Great Britain, uh, the the Americans took over, of course, the quarters that the officers had uh, resided in, and they found there uh, a couple of golf clubs and some golf balls as, as they were used then. So, um, you know, the, the precedent goes way back. And there are a number of clubs in the 19th century uh, that reportedly started play. Now, whether they continued or not, some of the Southern clubs, of course, did not continue because of the Civil War. Uh, and, and others played but were not organized. There was not a formal organization as St. Andrews had in 1888. And... You know, there are other clubs around the country like uh, Dorset in 1886, which started playing golf then, and they may well have had some organizational attributes. Um, I think it's it's fair to say uh, Herbert Warren Wynn recognized this anyway as the oldest continuous golf club in the United States. And uh, uh, I'm satisfied with that description, although, you know, it's great fun when you go play somewhere else, almost anywhere else, especially in the South, and you mentioning you're from St. Andrews, and if you throw in it's the oldest continuous golf club in the U.S., you're good, you're good for a conversation. Absolutely. A you know, I, I've heard that claim before, and, and there are a lot of clubs, you know, starting perhaps with like Harleston Green in, in Charleston and Savannah Golf Club, date back to uh, the 1700s before dying off. There's Oakhurst Links, Foxburg, and of course there was a golf course, maybe three or four holes in Burlington, Iowa, 1884. But many of these early golf clubs, whether continuous or not, disappeared. What in your mind gave St. Andrews the ability to weather the decades? I think it was the people who were then members and later uh, leaders of the club and also eventually of the USGA. Uh, We've got a pretty distinct line of people who... uh, organized, of course, St. Andrews in 1888 and saw it through to our present location about nine years later. Uh, But they also, as I know you're going to get into, had a pretty significant impact on the organization of the USGA. Many of St. Andrews uh, officers and members became officers of the USGA over the years. And this was a pretty determined group. Uh, They simply, they, they had some years, you can see from the minutes, where uh, the finances were not as robust as they as they could have been, uh, but there was, you know, there was simply nothing that was going to deter them. And the fact that they moved their course five times, I guess four moves, five locations in those early years, shows what they were willing to go through to maintain their golf course and to spread it. And I, I just think they were tough-minded individuals, and they made sure the golf continued. Rick, any thoughts? I would add that that um, interest in golf was spreading at a very rapid rate um, in the 
late 1800s, and we had constant uh, arrivals of uh, stronger, experienced players coming from the United Kingdom throughout that time frame. And I think that St. Andrews was really at the front end of a wave of, uh, of interest and enthusiasm in the game. And, uh, you know, had the opportunity to play a leadership role at that point in time. Uh, took that opportunity that buoyed the enthusiasm of the membership. The club indeed was recognized as a leader. And I think that um, this all worked together to, uh, you know, to put St. Andrews in a position of great strength uh, through that first uh, decade that carried it forward for, you know, a very long time, uh, as Bruce indicated. You mentioned earlier that the first photograph of golf in America occurred at St. Andrews. You mentioned that photograph. I'm curious, does St. Andrews own that photograph to this day? You know, we've invited you to our clubhouse, and if you enter the door and look on the right wall, there it is. The original one. The original one. Has it always been with St. Andrews, or, or was that discovered? I don't know the history behind that photograph specifically let me uh let me put it this way i'm not aware of any point in time when it was not with St. okay Andrews. do we know if any other photos were taken on that day that's that's the only one i know of on that on that day um there's golf photographs began to be uh, more common not too long after that. yeah about 10 years you somewhere know, around there oh, yeah yeah, oh yeah, within that period. But, um, uh, and you know, I suppose once you say that's the oldest photograph of golf in the United States, we'll find somebody in uh, in Iowa or Charleston or something like that saying, well, I just looked in my attic and here you go. But that that is the oldest one that anybody uh, uh, knows of. And it's, to me, it's just uh, striking. You know, this, this was not a, a luxurious uh, green pasture that they were playing in. It was, it, it was uh, difficult to play golf at that time. Uh, the the uh, the ground is is uneven. You can see that all around the picture. Uh, and golf was evolving. It was not yet the highly stylized and professional uh, sport, or in my case, amateur sport that we all uh, enjoy on a day to day basis. I guess you could say it was it was very much an adventure back then, wasn't it? I mean, you were hitting. Golf balls over stone walls and around trees and on greens that would stimp on a one. <laughs> you, you, you hope to do that. Right? Absolutely. And you know, some of the scores reflected, I mean, the nine-hole course at Gray Oaks, uh, I have read that a, a representative good round was something like 100. So, uh, you know, it, was, it wasn't quite the balls and the equipment that we have now. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Uh, So let's jump forward a little bit. Let's get to the majors here. In 1894, St. Andrews played more than one pivotal role in the evolution of golf in America. Two pivotal major tournaments were held at St. Andrews in 1894. Could you share the stories with our listeners, maybe perhaps starting with the amateur? Sure. Um, On August uh, 1st of 1894, the... uh, Secretary of St. Andrews, Henry Talmadge, invited uh, 
members of all golf clubs in the United States, I believe. I don't think anybody was left out to participate in an amateur tournament at St. Andrews on October 11, 12, and 13. And uh, the, the number of people who participated, I think, was in excess of 50. I don't have the actual number at hand. Uh, it was um, attended by, you know, leading golfers from all over the East and uh, also by Charles McDonald of Chicago, who was recognized as one of the best golfers in, in the country. Um, the uh, event came down on the last day to a contest between uh, L.B. Stoddard of St. Andrews and Charles McDonald of Chicago. Um, and the story is told, I've heard you tell it, uh, that the night uh, uh, before the Such final, a good story. Stanford... Stanford White, who was a very well-known architect, and I think you said he was a friend of McDonald's, which I did not yeah. know. Uh, he, was, he was also a member of St. Andrews. He was wearing two, two hats there. Uh, but he, he threw a party that uh, McDonald attended, and Stoddard wisely did not. Uh, so McDonald showed up the next day, not, the, uh, not in his best condition. Uh, Stoddard took an early lead. He was up three holes at the end of uh, nine and then on the seventeenth, uh, by the seventeenth hole, he had tied it up, and they both had a good drive in the fairway on eighteen. Uh, McDonald's second shot went into an adjoining field, which had been plowed, and he could not get it out of that field uh, until he had expended three shots. And there were no out of bounds rules or unplayable rules that were applied at that time, and so McDonald lost. Uh, to which. He is reported to have complained uh, bitterly. <laughs> right. Uh, now, now, he had had, uh, interestingly enough, uh, he had had a similar experience at Newport. The New there was a Newport tournament, which was held after um, St. Andrews invited everybody to their tournament. The Newport tournament was uh, earlier than the St. Andrews tournament, and it was stroke play. The St. Andrews tournament was match play. And there, McDonald again came in second, this time to a gentleman named W.G. Lawrence. And it's reported, I, I think I heard it from you originally, McDonald had the same problem there, except it wasn't a plowed field, it was a wall. Stone wall, yeah. Stone wall. And so he had faced, he had faced the same problem uh, in two of the tournaments that year. And... Uh, <laughs> Was was loudly heard to contest that they needed to fix this. Yeah, I, I joked with uh, Victoria Neno of the USGA uh, that what would have happened if he would have lost the 1895 amateur? Would there have had to have been another organizational tournament? <laughs> maybe, maybe another organization. You know, it's. I read an article uh, not that long ago um, about with. I think I can't remember who wrote it. I want to say it was one of McDonald's friends, but one of the complaints that McDonald had was that Stoddard was you know, a member of St. Andrews and therefore had an unfair advantage in knowing the terrain over the rest of the field. Now, of course, the same could be true if you were at Newport or Chicago Golf Club. And I, I don't know what the overall point was, but there were a lot of defenders for Charles Blair McDonald getting his do-over. Well, you know, McDonald and uh, Chicago hosted uh, the uh, amateur championship I want to say about a dozen years later, and I think I'm not sure if McDonald won it, but they certainly didn't give uh, handicap points no. to the people from the East Coast. No, they did he, not. He did not. Win it. No, he only won the one or the no. third. He no. might have won the third U.S. Amateur technically. 
right? Instead of uh, right. The, the two, he lost the, the two in eighteen ninety four. Right. Um, right. The other momentous tournament was the first, if not unofficial, U.S. Open. How did the professional championship come about? And can you walk the listeners through the happenings of the eighteen ninety four U.S. Open at St Andrews? Sure. Um, St. Andrews invited the professionals who were active in the United States at that time to come and compete in the tournament that followed uh, the amateur tournament. It was one right after the other. It was not a, you know, it was not a gap. And four professionals, which uh, was a fair proportion of the number of golf professionals in the U.S. at that time, showed up for the match play tournament. Uh, Willie Dunn, Jr. of Shinnecock Hills and W.F. Davis of Newport, Willie Campbell of Brookline, and Samuel Tucker of St. Andrews. And Willie Dunn defeated uh, W.F. Davis and Willie Campbell defeated uh, Samuel Tucker and then Dunn defeated Campbell in the final match. He won a gold medal and there are pictures of him wearing the gold medal and a hundred dollars and the story we have heard rick and i have heard is that when uh, willie dunn went to his uh, grave the gold medal was on his chest oh really i did not hear that that's interesting um let me ask you both in your opinion was the 1894 u.s open a non-sanctioned usga event in fact our country's first u.s open Sure. It was the first U.S. Open. The USGA was not organized until the following year, and and then they had the first U.S. Open sanctioned by the USGA. But it doesn't change the character of the U.S. Open in 1894. Rick? And, and I, would, I would second that by saying that um, in, in keeping with the tradition uh, of the origins of golf, uh, the Open Championships are recognized in the United Kingdom prior to the uh, beginning, the origins of the RNA, just as, and we believe uh, that that tradition should really be the, the uh, tradition that takes precedent, but we are nonetheless, uh, you know, uh, certainly happy to abide by the decisions of the USGA. You know, I, I, I know you listened to the podcast I had with Victoria Neno, and I love the USG. I love their historians, but I had a, a playful debate uh, on their 125th anniversary as to whether the 1894 and Willie Dunn should be the U.S. Open champion. And here's, here, are the, here are the arguments against in my rebuttals as I had them. So I, I, I kind of thought them through. So one of the arguments against, and I think Victoria brought this up. I'm not 100% sure. I know others have that there were only four golfers competing in the 1894 U.S. Open. I would argue my defense of that is the Open Championship in 1860 only had eight. Golf was relatively new in the United States. So, you know, Should the number count when you have the four best golfers, the four best professional golfers in the United States, which seemed to be across the board a yes in that tournament? And Willie Dunn, though he didn't, I believe he came in second uh, in 1895, was widely considered the greatest golfer in the United States at that time, amateur or pro. Uh, And uh, to that point, I would also argue that unlike the first Open Championship, the winner, in this case, Willie Dunn, received prize money and a trophy. And for the Open, you didn't win the first four. I don't believe you won money. 
you re- you receive the trophy that you got to you know keep essentially for a year and then return it. As a matter of fact, it cost you money in the Open to win the Open Championship because you had to put down a down payment to take the championship belt with you. Uh, the second argument that I, I like to put out there is, and I think you brought this up uh, quite well, as a matter of fact, is it can't be a U.S. Open without the USGA. And to your point, uh, you mentioned the RNA was not the ruling body over the Open Championship. It wasn't until 1919. So if we hold that same standard for the Open, you could say that the first 59 years of the Open Championship essentially wasn't a major championship, if you hold it to that standard. And then my favorite argument, this is my favorite of them all, um, is that the U.S. Open, is, it's, it's not a U.S. Open because the USA does not recognize it as a U.S. Open. My rebuttal is that the USJ did recognize it as a non-sanctioned USJ US Open and did so up to 1910. In the 1910 USGA program, 16 years after the event, it mentions that Willie Dunn is the US Open champion of a non-sanctioned USGA Open championship. So, and, and beyond that, newspaper, by the way, newspaper, the AP, etc., widely called Willie Dunn our first U.S. Open winner all the way up until World War II. And I think you can find, I, I think I found over a thousand references in AP reports across the country having 1894 U.S. Open champion Willie Dunn. So I think there's a very strong argument. And I think as much as anything, you almost want to know what changed. What changed between, you know, 1894 and 1910 or thereon after? I, I, I don't have any you know, evidence beyond that that the USJ called or didn't call Willie Dunn the Open Championship uh, winner, but it's a curious case. So I think there's enough, I think there's a lot of evidence to support your cause. I think there's a lot of evidence to support Willie Dunn's cause as our first US Open champion. So let me add two, yeah, please do. two things. Um, uh, one, one is that um, the 50th, U.S. Open. Uh, don't have the date that, to mind, but I think it was the 50th U.S. Open, or maybe it was 1950, I'm thinking of. Uh, the booklet that the USGA put out uh, describing who the Open winners had been, the first the first person listed is Willie Dunn in the 1894 tournament. They did make the point that the USGA had not been organized yet, but they did, they did uh, recognize them at that time. Uh, and, and second, uh, you're right about uh, articles. There are many, many articles that did recognize Willie Dunn as the U.S. champion golfer in 1894. As well as, I believe Chick Evans wrote an article about him as well, being the 1894 yes. the first U.S. Open champion. I don't think anybody's disputing that, you know, he's, he's not the first uh, USGA-sanctioned U.S. Open champion, but I just would like our listeners to have an open mind that, just perhaps Willie Dunn was our first U.S. Open champion. Not taken away from Horace well, I, Rawlings. I, I have an open mind, and I think your arguments are quite persuasive. <laughs> and I would simply say that we have always recognized that to be the case at St. Andrews, and we always will. I love that. So regardless of the debate as to whether the 1894 U.S. Open was in fact the first U.S. Open, and the two championships at St. Andrews, they helped change the course of golf history in America with the formation of the USGA. 
What was Sand Andrews' part in that newly formed organization? How did that come about? Maybe tell that story. And how did St. Andrews play a big part in the formation of the USGA? Well, it started, uh, I think, the right place to start that discussion is with the uh, letter of Henry Talmadge on August 1st, 18, uh, 1894, where uh, he invited uh, members of all the golf clubs uh, to come to the uh, St. Andrews Golf course for this tournament in October. But in the same letter, he also went on to say that the club would be pleased either to continue to offer an amateur championship medal as they were then in future years, or to join with other clubs in forming an association to take charge of championship competitions in such other matters as may properly be controlled by it. And so that invitation separate from the invitation to play golf in October, led to uh, Talmadge, who was a member of the Calumet Club on Fifth Avenue and 29th Street in New York, uh, organizing a, a dinner on uh, in December, I think it was the 22nd, of 1894, where the, the five uh, golf courses, golf clubs were recognized as having organized the USGA, did meet and did take the first steps toward organization, which was completed in February 1895, a couple of months later. I mean, everybody knows this, but the five courses were St. Andrews, uh, Chicago, Newport, the Country Club in Brookline, and Shinnecock Hills. I mean, that's an amazing piece of history. And it really all comes back to the event that you held in 1894. It, It is a pure connect the dots of history that all these pieces come together and they kind of revolve around your club. Does that ever, does that hit home to you whenever you watch a U.S. Open? I'm, I'm just curious for yeah. both of you. Well, not just when I watch the U.S. Open, but, uh, you know, generally the, the significance St. Andrews played in organizing golf in the United States and spreading it is something I think our members are very much aware of. And, uh, you know, I, we we are aware of that at all times. The open the open takes on more meaning, perhaps, as it does to all golfers. But uh, this was this was obviously a very a very big event. How about you, Rick? I would just add to that that um, you know even today the way we think about ourselves, and you'll see it on the website, is that we um, we we see ourselves advancing the game of golf. So we talk. Uh, endlessly about what we can do, whether it be the support we give to our collegiate teams, our high school teams, uh, our participation in various golf charities, um, the tournaments that we sponsor, the things that that, uh, matter to us are the the things that will advance the game and the role we can play in. And I think this all harks back to this foundational aspect of our history. That's a great point. I'm going to ask you a difficult question, and I don't know if there's an answer. This is for both of you. It's one of the most important questions to me for you gentlemen. A tough questions for historians, certainly. But if you look at the five founding members of the United States Golf Association, Chicago Golf Club has hosted three U.S. Opens, four U.S. Amateurs, and one U.S. Women's Amateur. Shinnecock has ho- hosted five U.S. Opens, one U.S. Amateur, and one U.S. Women's Amateur. 
Newport Country Club has hosted one U.S. Open, two U.S. Amateurs, and one U.S. Women's Open, and the Country Club has hosted three U.S. Opens, six U.S. Amateurs, and two U.S. Women's Amateurs. Together, these four founding members of the USGA have hosted 30 of the top four USGA majors in history. How is it possible that St. Andrews Golf Club, the oldest of the five founding members, the host of arguably the first U.S. Open U.S. Amateur ever, has not hosted one of the four largest USGA events. Is, is there a story behind that? It just seems, I, 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 I struggle to understand that. And I'm not knocking the USGA. This is hundreds, uh, over 100 years ago. But I, I, is there a story behind that that we know of, gentlemen? Well, there are a number of entries in the minutes of St. Andrews, which lay out a course of treating the question of holding uh, the U.S. Open or U.S. Amateur. And uh, the first the first entry you would find would be in 1898, February of 1898, when there was a resolution to offer the St. Andrews Golf Course to the USGA for their annual championship meeting. Uh, I don't have anything that tells me what happened after that, but we know that there was not a championship at St. Andrews uh, in, in that year. Uh, second, uh, in, in 1899, the next year, um, the minutes record that the, the governors decided that if the USGA offers a national tournament to St. Andrews, uh, it shall be accepted. And again, nothing, nothing came of that so far as we know. Uh, the next year, 1900, the USGA asked St. Andrews if the club wished to apply for any championship in 1900, and the Board of Governors replied yes to the Open. Nothing happened again. In December of 1900, uh, Talmadge, whose name has come up before, made a motion at a board meeting to apply for the Open tournament, and it was taken under advisement by the board, uh, and if if the board believed that holding the tournament or a tournament would be in the best interest of the club, the board was authorized to proceed. That did not happen. They didn't vote or they didn't proceed? They didn't proceed. Interesting. Now, whether they asked, whether they asked the USGA uh, to hold it, then the USGA said no, that I don't know. But nothing, again, nothing occurred that year. In February of 1901, this is just a couple of months later, months later, the USGA sent a letter. Uh, I think this was a circular letter, so it went to St. Andrews and other clubs, asking does St. Andrews wish to apply for either championship event in 1901, and St. Andrews replied, they do not. In December of 1903, the uh, secretary was authorized or directed to tell the USGA that St. Andrews will not make application for either of the USGA championships in 1904. And the final entry I find is in early 1905. The USGA again asked, is St. Andrews going to apply for any 1905 tournament? And the response in the board minutes, I'm not sure this is what they said to the USGA, was that the tournaments held in the past, a variety of tournaments had been held at St. Andrews, just not the U.S. Sure. Amateur and the U.S. Open. Tournaments held in the past had not been beneficial to the club's interest, more of a drawback. And that's a quote. So I, I think, frankly, they decided 
after having indicated an interest in the earlier years, that uh, the interest of the members who were there to play golf, who were there to play golf themselves, uh, was simply was simply not going to be served by holding either the U.S. Amateur or the U.S. Open going forward. That's the best I can uh, see from the minutes. That is a fantastic explanation. The best one I've heard. I thank you for sharing that. I, I would just add to that that uh, any conjecture that there was somehow um, anything less than positive that might have uh, unfolded between USGA and St. Andrews would be refuted by the fact that uh, you know, over the years uh, from the turn of the century right up into the late 30s, uh, St. Andrews members held positions of uh, were officer positions in the USGA. Uh, 1901 and two, the years, several of the years that this was going back and forth. Uh, Robertson was president. John Reed was vice president. Uh, John Reed Jr. subsequently became secretary and then vice president. And then in the 30s, Archie Reed, uh, John Reed's uh, younger son, became president of USGA. So the club was uh, fully engaged in USGA, held positions of uh, importance, and I think everything was quite uh, quite positive between uh, the organizations. So this was a matter of, I think, uh, the uh, the decisions of the board. Yeah. I, I, thank you for explaining that. I, like I said, I, I believe I asked Victoria, and I don't think she really had an answer. Uh, of course, I don't. I didn't give her a prep question, so she, of course she probably didn't even think about looking that one up. But uh, that was very helpful for my understanding, specifically. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, another one of the first. And we're going to get into some of the first now. Um, one of your first involves the 1900 Olympics. It's a very interesting story. A lot, probably a lot of people don't even connect it to St. Andrews. Maybe you could share the story of Charles Sands. Rick, why don't you take that? I, I would be happy to. Um, just by way of background, um, in 2016, when golf returned to the Olympic Games, we took the opportunity to uh, celebrate Charles Sands' victory at, in the 1900 Games in Paris and did a good amount of research into Sands um, and were delighted with everything we found out about Charles Sands. And uh, in that year, renamed one of our annual tournaments in his honor and had a, an exhibition. Um, so, you know, we certainly, uh, you know, are proud of, uh, of that part of our history. In terms of uh, the specifics, Charles Sands was uh, born and, and raised in New York. Uh, he, uh, we don't know much about his childhood, although we do know he was the uh, the uh, son of a prominent uh, uh, New York stockbroker, founding uh, uh, member, founding stock New York Stock Exchange family, uh, we do. He does come into view um, at Columbia College, where he was an outstanding athlete. Um, participated in many sports, but was just a standout uh, rackets player. Um, Upon graduation, he uh, chose to uh, pursue a career in tennis um, and uh, immediately began uh, working his way up the national rankings. 
to the point that uh, by 1894, he had reached the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open in tennis. Wow. Wow. So he was, uh, and I would be remiss if I didn't just add a couple of points from his college days. Uh, he rode on the crew team that you know, defeated Harvard at New London. He played uh, on the uh, intercollegiate uh, football team that was undefeated in his three years. He was just a wonderful all-around athlete. Uh, and, and that begins to come into focus in 1894 because uh, and, uh, he joined the St. Andrews Golf Club in that year. Um, and likely he was encouraged to join by his brother, who uh, was a superb player and was uh, our actually was our club champion uh, around that time. But what is most remarkable is that in his first year uh, as a golfer, uh, he made the decision to, in order to gain experience, to play in the uh, U.S. Amateur uh, Championship that was uh, in that year held at Newport. And, uh, I'm sorry, 1895. Yes. Right. Um, and so in that, uh, and that's the year he actually joined, I'm sorry, the summer of 1895, he joined St. Andrews. Uh, and, uh, he, uh, had the remarkable, uh, experience of advancing through his bracket of match play, uh, to reach, uh, the finals and play Charles McDonald. Uh, and Charles McDonald, of course, significantly more experienced, uh, um, even though it was closer than McDonald expected at the end of the first 18. I believe that uh, McDonald was uh, five up at the end of uh, 18. Uh, McDonald dominated the second 18 and defeated him 12 and 11. But uh, it's pretty amazing uh, to think that here's this young player, Charles Sands, who had picked up the game only months before uh, making it all the way to the finals of the U.S. Open uh, and actually acquitting himself you know, fairly well for the first 18 holes. And then he goes on to the Olympics. It's 1900. It's the first time golf has ever been in the Olympics, correct? It is the first time golf's been in the Olympics, and uh, the, uh, the organizers of the games were extremely enthusiastic about the inclusion of golf. Uh, because um, they wanted, they believed that golf would be uh, a tremendous asset uh, to all cities, uh, improving the health of the population. So the French were very enthusiastic and wanted to promote golf. Uh, but the reason he was in Paris was to play tennis. Um, really? He, had, uh, he yes, he had he had traveled to France. Um, in 1899 uh, in order to begin to prepare for the Olympic Games. In March of 1899, um, he uh, sailed to France, and in that year, he competed in the French National Championship Tournament and won. In, ten uh, in tennis, correct? In yes, tennis. okay. And the championship was Raquette d'Or equivalent to the national championship. And he, uh, he won that the first non-French champion. And, um, he then, uh, proceeded to, uh, make plans to play in the Olympic games in tennis. And I'm sure he was hoping, uh, for a strong finish in tennis, 
but that was not to be. Uh, tennis was played um, in midsummer, and he was defeated in the uh, first round of all of the events he entered. Um, I'm sure he was quite disappointed in yeah. that because tennis tennis was his game. But um, he also had uh, uh, registered to play in the golf competition, which took place in the fall in October. And it was played on October 2nd. Um, it was played at a tournament or at a course roughly 60 miles north of Paris. The format was 36 hole stroke play. 12 uh, prominent players uh, participated from the United States, Britain, France, Greece, and Australia. Sands shot rounds of 82 and 85 to defeat Walter Rutherford, a prominent player of Scotland, by one stroke, and uh, thereby became the first Olympic golf champion and America's only only champion. Gold medal winner, Charles Sands, and member of St. Andrew's Golf Club. Indeed. Fantastic, right? Indeed. Fantastic. Rick and, I, Rick and I have seen the medal. It's uh, uh, held by a collector out in Long Island. Is his name, first name George? Rick? Uh, no. Okay. All right. Uh, I know I know I a collector out there that has a lot of medals. I thought maybe it was his. His name is, his name is William Anderson. Okay. Right. He's a retired professor from uh, the SUNY, uh, uh, one of the SUNY Long Island uh, universities. That is amazing. What a piece of history. The uh, first place medal, it followed the uh, tradition that had been established in Greece in, um, uh, in, the, in the initial Olympic Games. And uh, the first place medal was silver, and the second place medal was silver-coated bronze. And there was no third place medal. Interesting. Bruce, what were you going to say? Yeah. I, I was going to add a Charles Sands story. Uh, after, after he lost to McDonald 12 and 11, uh, another member of St. Andrews named Winthrop Rutherford uh, apparently made some deprecating remarks about Charles Sands' play that was reported to Sands. And uh, what resulted may be the first recorded grudge match where Rutherford and Charles Sands played in October 1895 at Meadowbrook head to head. The umpire for the match was Theodore Habemeyer, who was wow. the USDA yeah. president. Uh, the prize was a thousand dollars. Whoa! hundred dollars. Whoa! And Sands Sands won three and two. Wow! A thousand dollars. This there was a lot of grit in this guy. I think. Yeah. So uh, that it, it's a wonderful story. It is the case, uh, if I may, Bruce, that. Uh, Rutherford was a um, Newport member. Oh, I thought he was a St. Andrews member. No, Newport, okay. Newport member. So it All was right. a bit, it was a bit of uh, Newport versus St. Andrews grudge match. I love it. Yeah, I love and, it. Uh, and uh, it was uh, an event that got widespread uh, coverage in the media. It made uh, Sands a bit of a uh, you know uh, brought him a, a degree of fame. Um, but it also came to the attention of the fledgling USGA, and in the next year, they uh, implemented uh, some of the strongest uh, restrictions on wagering of any major sport, and it was thought to be directly related to, um, you know, what had happened uh, between Rutherford and Sands. So he was grandfathered in. He didn't lose his amateur status. He did not. He did not. There's one last 
tidbit on Sands that I think is is just worth mentioning. Uh, you know, when he returned uh, to the United States uh, after winning uh, the medal in golf, uh, he competed again in uh, tennis, and uh, he won the U.S. Um, um, national court championship event, and he became uh, the national champion in court tennis wow. in that year. So he continued to compete in tennis. Uh, he was uh, in, in 1908 uh, at the age of 43. He returned to the Olympic Games in uh, London and competed in court tennis uh, in London. And uh, he lost in the first round in that of, of those events also. But in so doing, he became one of only two Americans to have competed in three sports in two separate Olympic Games. That is pretty cool. Good for you, Charles Sands, right? That's pretty cool history. I love that. Amazing, amazing athlete. So I, I thought we, before we get into some other things, uh, we've left out a lot of firsts. I don't know if you have a list, but we've gone through uh, the first U.S. Open and the first photograph of golf in the United States, uh, the first U.S. or I'm sorry, the first Olympic medal. What other firsts? If you have a list, I have a list, so I'm cheating. What other firsts can be <laughs> attributed to St. Andrews? Well, there are probably two or three others we might we might mention. Um, the first recorded mixed foursome in America was played at uh, St. Andrews on March 30th, 1889. The contestants were Mrs. John Reed and J.B. Upham against Miss Carrie Law and Mr. John Reed. And Mrs. Reed and her partner defeated John Reed and his partner in the morning match. Over lunch, uh, John Reed demanded a rematch in the afternoon when he lost the game. Oh, had to do chores so, for the month. Uh, we don't know what the uh, what the upshot of it was, but he could not have been. <laughs> Clearly, if he asked for a rematch. <laughs> right, right. Also, uh, in, in 1894, St. Andrews and uh, three other clubs, Tuxedo, Brookline, and Shinnecock Hills, met in first known inter recorded interclub team match which was held at tuxedo uh and um interestingly because the uh, amateur was being held just two days later at st andrews it was supposed to be a two-day event and at the end of the first day st andrews and brookline were tied for first place but the st andrews members all had to leave because of the impending event up at st andrews itself and so Brookline went home with the uh, with the trophy. But as far as it's known, that was the first interclub team match, October 9, 1894. Um, and finally, a little more whimsical, perhaps, uh, St. Andrews hosted the first U.S. foursome tournament, also in October 1894. St. Andrews was heavily favored to win because there were two two-man teams, one was L.B. Stoddard and J.B. Upham of St. Andrews, and the other was T.C. Ten Eyck and W.E. Hodgman, also of St. Andrews. So uh, that was a uh, alternate shot format, which does not, except for the scrambles we all play occasionally, I guess that's close, but that has not caught on as much of a separate event. Uh, that was uh, also held during October 1894, a very active month. Indeed. So... 
I've, I've dedicated the second season of the Talking Golf History podcast to the history of our greatest golf course architects. Do we know who designed the early courses of the club? Yes. Um, at least, at least uh, some of them. The um, Gray Oaks course, which is where the U.S. Open and the U.S. Amateur were uh, played in eight, 1894, were uh, designed by Samuel Tucker, who was then joined later by his younger brother, Willie. And then, Rick, I think it's our understanding that Willie Tucker uh, laid out the course on the property where St. Andrews exists today. That, that, that's correct. Now, w- Willie Tucker uh, was actually professionally trained as uh, a golf course architect under Tom Dunn in, uh, in uh, England. Tom Dunn, based in London, he was, that was the largest, most active golf course architecture firm in the world at the time. And Willie Dunn had been responsible for uh, designing several prominent courses in Europe prior to coming to the U.S. and joining his brother, Sam, at St. Andrews. Um, and he was the principal architect of the current the, of the first course at our current location, which at the time was called the Mount Hope course. But at the same time, uh, a little known uh, but important uh, fact is that... Um, he also designed the first course at the Maidstone Club, also uh, right around the same time. That course opened in 1896. Our course opened in 1897. He went on to design over 100 courses, including several uh, quite prominent courses, among them uh, the St. Mark's course at the Philadelphia Cricket Club. I could. There's quite a list of courses that he uh, was responsible for. But... Uh, Interestingly, he went west and designed courses as far west as Washington State. He designed uh, the course, a course for the University of Arizona. He was a, a prolific designer, and he left a big mark in the U.S. across the country. And this is this is Willie Tucker we're speaking about, right? Rick? Yes, Willie yeah. Tucker. And I think you told me today or yesterday that he also married Willie Dunn's sister. He was married to the Duns, that's right, and uh, the Duns were truly golf royalty, of course, and Tucker was also part of that. Exactly right. And then later, uh, Rick, there were two other golf architects who have contributed to the present course, uh, James Braid and Jack Nicklaus. The uh, 1894 course was certainly built of the Victorian style, uh, with nine holes playing over a very Victorian-style bunkers, but also over a series of walls. When the course moved to its current location in 1897, it probably also was built in that Victoria design. But then in the late 1920s, the club solicited five-time Open champion and one of the greatest golf course architects of all time, James Braid, to consult on the redesign. Now, Braid, to my knowledge, never left Europe for the United States. How did James Braid receive recognition for the redesign of St. Andrews? Well, it, the date we have uh, when Braid was asked to advise on the redesign was uh, 1928. And it, you're right. Our understanding is he never left uh, Great Britain either. He certainly, there's no record of him coming to St. Andrews to uh, advise on changes. But uh, he uh, submitted suggestions in writing 
or at least they're recorded in writing in the minutes as to what he as to what he was suggesting, and uh, the club took them to heart and used some, most, but not all of what he suggested. Fascinating. Do you you still have those notes in the minutes? Uh, I say the minutes. I believe they're either in the minutes or they may be in a separate file we have on James Braid. I'm not. I'm not sure which. He did submit a pencil sketch as well, Ooh. and that and that exists. We have the pencil sketch. Really? How cool is that? Do we? Do you recall what what he recommended for the course? I believe what he primarily recommended was a change to the final four holes. 15 through 18, and the pencil sketch that Rick mentioned uh, describes where those four holes would begin and end, uh, and in fact, uh, where they began and ended when I joined in 1968 was close to what he suggested, but not entirely in accord with it. But it, it was, you know, it adopted pretty much uh, what he suggested, but not every facet. I mean, that's fascinating to me because essentially that makes James Braid his only design in the United States would be St. Andrews Golf Club. That's correct. Fascinating. And there is a very cool. There is a James Society that uh, lists the the clubs that are associated with James Braid's work work, and uh, many, many, of course, in the UK and one in the United States, and that's St. Andrews. And uh, we are active members of that um, um, society, and um, we do uh, welcome members from other clubs that were designed by James Braid, and we, uh, we normally have a dozen or so visitors each year that come to play St. Andrews because of the James Braid connection. Interesting. I, I just, that is... Out of all of your amazing history, that one is very fascinating to me. The, th- the thought that they would write to James Braid overseas uh, to consult on the golf course, and then James Braid responding and the club putting them into effect is just brilliant. I, I just, I, I am overwhelmed by that. That is such a cool story. So... In 1983, the club again sought to update its design and again sought the architectural expertise of a major championship winner. Could you share the story of the club hiring Jack Nicholas to renovate your club? Uh, yes, it actually, uh, the movement toward hiring a professional uh, started, I think it's fair to say, in the late 70s. And there was a process, uh, a selection committee, that was headed by Phil Mitchell, who was then the president of the club, and Malcolm Wilson, who was the vice president of the club, the lieutenant governor of the state of New York, and later governor of the state of New York, and a, a lawyer named John Noss, who was a partner of the law firm of Seward and Kissel. Uh, and I, uh, I was the secretary at that time, so I had the responsibility for typing up or actually my good secretary, Felicia, had the responsibility for typing up the papers that were involved in the the transaction with Nicholas. There were at least three, and I think think I'm right about this, there were at least three uh, potential organizations that would have done this work. Nicholas was one, Palmer was another, and Poyer was the third. 
and uh, I was I was not part of the group that actually made the selection, but of course everybody knows it was Jack Nicholas, and uh, uh, he uh, sought uh, to develop something like 200, 210 townhomes up on parts of our property that had not been um, used yet, and he also, of course, changed the golf course considerably and made it, I think it's fair to say, much tougher. Yeah. Let me ask you a tough question here. So, and this is in relation to a New York's Time article from 1983, and it doesn't say St. Andrews, but it, it alludes to it right next to the article of of Jack Nicholas. So I figured I'd come to you to get it straight. Was the club hurting financially at the time? And I asked that because the article right next to the article of of Jack Nicholas, and it could just be a coincidence, mentions that golf clubs are selling off land to help with their financial issues right next to the article of Jack Nicholas, you know, working out a deal to develop homes or condos on the property. Well, uh, it's fair to say that the financial situation of the club in the late 1700s uh, was not as strong as might have been hoped. Uh, we had uh, um, uh, sort of a, uh, um, I can't remember the exact numbers, but the membership was not as robust as it, as it should have been. And one of the reasons for doing the deal with Jack Nicholas or somebody was was not just uh, to have the course revised in a way that would be more attractive and more challenging, but also uh, if there were going to be uh, people living in these townhomes and they wound up with only 92 rather than 200 and some, uh, they would be potential members. And indeed, um, there are, I think, approximately 35 members from uh, what we call the Hill today out of the 92. It may be more. And I should mention that my wife and I have bought one of those townhomes and I'll be ready to move into in a month. Oh, really? So it's going to happen soon? Yeah. I hope How so. great is that? I'm trying to push on my contractor, but uh, I'm not sure we're going to make yeah, it. Yeah, that's, that's always a tough one. Like, yeah. yeah. We will be in there. So there's a lot of stories about the Nicholas renovation. Um, and I, I think Nicholas, too, was probably, I think he was hurt financially from that downturn in the housing market as well. Um, but how did the course change in that 1983 to 1985 period? I know holes were changed, but were they eliminated, moved? Like, how, how did that redesign come about? What did it look like after, before and after, I suppose? Yeah, he, um, he made some major changes to the geography. Uh, uh, there, uh, there were originally four holes, one through four, uh, on the top of the hill next to the clubhouse. And he reduced that number to uh, three and, and added additional holes up in, again, in the uh, rocky area uh, toward, uh, toward the back of the, what would have been the old, the old course. He developed a, a really interesting uh, new fourth hole. When St. Andrews was, was earlier laid out, they had the four holes, as I said, at the top of the hill, and then the fifth hole was probably the most pictured hole uh, in Westchester. It was off a cliff onto a fairway down below and then a very small target green surrounded by traps. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people came away with birdies and a lot of people came away with sixes and sevens on That's that. That's usually what creates a good hole, right? Right. Disparity right. of score. I, I mean, I have, I'm sitting here in, in my office and I have a painting of that hole 
on my wall immediately to my left. Uh, there are dozens of pictures. I've got a, an old cigarette box with a, another painting of the hole from a different perspective. It was very, very widely recognized as one of the most beautiful holes uh, in the area. But what Nicholas did was make it better. Uh, we now have a fourth hole coming off the same cliff with an extensive fairway out ahead of you. And then you have a dog leg, sharp dog leg left to an elevated green, which I think is fair to say is one of the hardest holes uh, at St. Andrews. And that was not that was not there before. That that elevated green was all his. And some of the existing holes, uh, he loves to develop a little, I don't know what you'll call it, a little cutout area in the front of the green, so that if you're just a little bit short with your shot, you've got a very difficult up the hill putt to where the pin would be. Uh, there must be at least three holes that he developed that now have that feature. And uh, we all, of course, praise him when we experience the burden that he uh, <laughs> that he puts on us when we play. But he made it, he made it, understandably, a much more difficult course. It's great to play uh, for the very good players and challenging but not overwhelming for the average players as well. He did a good job with the golf course. So overall, you'd say it was a good decision? Hiring Nicholas oh, and changing the course. For the club, it was, for the club, it was a great decision. Um, the Jack, the Jack Nicholas organization did uh, wind up, as I say, uh, creating far fewer uh, units than they had hoped. And there was eventually a financial arrangement of some sort with the financing bank and Nicholas and the, the Homer's uh, organization. But at the end of the day, I think everybody, uh, I don't know what Nicholas's financial results were. We're not privy to that, but. Um, I think he was quite pleased with the uh, result with the course. And when we had the uh, uh, Golf Magazine 100th Anniversary of Golf in the United States in 1988, uh, Nicholas came back and uh, and played the course and went around with our then-president, Bill Connor, maybe he was just ex-president once we moved, uh, and you know, said, I, I really love this part, I really love that part. Uh, he buried his new 16th hole, which is a very pretty par 3, and twice tried to drive the par four, 325-yard second hole, and on both occasions buried his ball deep in the woods to the left, <laughs> which which all of us secretly were quite right. Good. Risk reward, you got the risk. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, that's great. I mean, this this might have been easier had COVID not hit, and we were sitting across each other in the boardroom, and then we had played the round, and then I'd be able to speak to the greatness of the course and its design. So in the future, perhaps. You'll have to come do that. I, I look forward to it. Uh, unfortunately, you are, you are invited. COVID is driving me crazy with my travel schedule. You know, as we sum up, I, you know, I personally think St. Andrews Golf Club is quite possibly the most important golf club in the American history. How do you gentlemen view the legacy of the club? Well, it's hard to say uh, anything that we haven't already said. I mean, the... Uh, John Reed and the other organizers and the people who were in charge of the club for the first decade, which brought us from 1888 toward our present location, obviously had great love for the game, great determination, and they were effective. You know, I don't know of another club that has moved to five different locations or started at one, moved to four more in nine years and, and survived not just survived, but actually uh, had a very big hand in creating the USGA 
in advancing the game of golf in the New York area and in the United States. And I think that's how we all view our heritage. How about you, Rick? I I would uh, I would I think that's correct. I would come back to what uh, I was saying before. You know, it's we are the club that moved multiple times in the uh, endless quest to find a better playing opportunity for our members, a better golf course. Even after the Nicholas complete redo of the course, uh, additional work was done on the course. We've we've done by Nicholas. He's come back. Holes have changed. We've uh, we've renovated four holes in the last. uh, two years, um, we've put in uh, improvements throughout the entire um, golf operation. We think our learning center is the finest in New York, but it, it really comes down to um, uh, an itch to continue to move forward, to continue to improve. There's never been uh, a reluctance. There's never. We've never, as much as we are. Uh, grounded in our history, there's never been a reluctance to move forward, to try to find a better way to do something, to try to uh, improve what we're doing. And that is so manifest in the club today. Uh, The energy and enthusiasm uh, of our members today, uh, the uh, beautiful uh, facilities that that we have, the uh, the state of the art uh, technology that we have uh, implemented in the last five years. We're just, it's a club that's just got an itch for the game and we want to, we're just moving forward. And I think it's always been the case. I think that comes all the way down from the, the very origins and uh, alive and well today. Well, I, I think it's fair to say that a good club, like a good organization or a good company comes down to culture. And it seems like you, you folks have that down pat. We hope so. That certainly is the way we feel about it. Thank you. We love it. Uh, it's an amazing place. It's a privilege to be uh, involved in this. You know, if you think about it, it was 132 years ago, John Reed and, and his buddy played three holes in a cow pasture. And now the United States has over 15,000 golf courses. Is that is that John Reed's greatest legacy? Yes, I think that's fair to say. That was his dream. He he. Uh, it was his hope that in naming the cl- his first club St Andrews, that this club could play a role in developing the game as St Andrews in Scotland did. That's just I. I don't know. I just I'm blown away by that stat. <laughs> you know, 132 years pass, 15,000 courses later, and here we are still playing this glorious game in the United States, thanks to John Reed and people like him. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today on the Talking Golf History Podcast. I'm a great admirer of your club and its history, and I sincerely hope that our listeners learned about the important place your club holds in our history. Thank you so much for joining us. Our pleasure. Thank you. Privilege. You've just listened to the history of St. Andrews, the club of many firsts. This show may have stirred up as many questions as it did answers. Where would we be without John Reed teeing up his ball in a field in 1888? Was the 1894 U.S. Open at St. Andrews the first U.S. Open? Did our arguments for its inclusion convince you? I would love to hear your feedback on Twitter. Find me at at S Historians on Twitter 
or join us on our private Facebook page, the Society of Golf Historians, for further discussion. Before we end our show today, a fellow researcher and historian reached out to me regarding some of his own research on St. Andrews. The club's historians will be doing internal research to see what evidence can be found in their archives. If they are able to uncover evidence that echoes the researchers' findings, we will be back with this groundbreaking find into the history of St. Andrews. Until next time, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. <laughs>